I have to be delusional enough to think people are going to listen to this. It's thunderstorming outside. There's lightning. Hit me with it. Come on. How smart can you be when you have huge mantids? Okay, he, him. Go put your pronouns and go sit in the corner. I'll take care of this. It's just common sense. Good morning, Octopod. How you doing? Good morning, Miss Commoner. I am fabulous. How are you? Fabulous. Love to hear that. We were just talking about how Octopod was doing caviar bumps yesterday on a lake. I can't really know say that I know exactly what that means, but it sounds pretty elite and extravagant. Yeah, I have a friend who's in the caviar industry, and uh, we happen to be in the same place at the same time and uh, went out on a lake. And um, a lot of people like serving the caviar on... Um, on uh potato chips I've um, seen that. with uh creme fraiche but this caviar was it was uh it was an ocetra it was it was milder and we we just preferred taking a scoop putting it on your on your fist and slurping it off and that was the best way to to enjoy it in my opinion <laughs> um well now that we're on the topic is caviar one of your favorite foods do you think that it is worth all of the hype that it gets Caviar can be one of the most delicious things, delicious foods that you can eat. Uh, as far as hype-wise, there's a lot of really bad caviar out there. And I think a lot of people, if you don't know what you're looking for, you just buy a caviar and uh, <clears throat> can have an underwhelming experience. And uh, uh, a lot of restaurants will like freeze their caviar to you know keep it um, viable and then uh, there can be issues with like defrosting and if the caviar isn't that great. If you open up a tin of caviar, <clears throat> all of the eggs should be like perfect spheres. If you see a bunch of like oozing juice, uh, it's probably improper storage or the caviar wasn't processed correctly. So, mm. Well, now that we're on the topic, I went to one fancy schmancy dinner last year. It was one of those 12 courses, fine dining. I went for work. And I think I immediately DM'd you after and said, my stomach hurts. Like, I did not really enjoy myself all that much. And one thing that you said that I thought was really interesting was like, well, I said it was a two star, not a three star. And you said, oh, they're trying to prove themselves. They're doing everything fancy schmancy that they can. And they forgot the true basics on how to make really good food or something like that. So That sounds familiar because I, I remember you not having a good time. <laughs> um. Would you say that that's like common or are there restaurants that you know are trying to be the elite, the best, the top of the line so they get that th third star? So they're doing these really fancy, expensive foods and like it's not focusing on the super delicious meal anymore. Yeah, I think that that niche of three star restaurants is is a smaller niche that takes an incredible level of dedication and training to attain. And I think a lot of people kind of chase that and they're either trying to put the cart before the horse or they need more training. They haven't trained enough or they just don't have the, uh, <clears throat> they don't want to put in the time. And then you end up with someone that's cooking food that they think um, is technical, but, it's not delicious anymore and it's just kind of disappointing for everyone yeah so for that restaurant that I went to it just felt like every dish was something very extravagant and expensive but it was all the same kind of really dense really strong salty or sweet flavor and like a lot of thick heavy creams 
they did some kind of crazy things like they had lobster custard and they had I don't even know foie gras which is one of your favorite foods but I just thought it was a little bit overwhelming and I didn't really like the food so I can't really um justify spending something that much money on something like that especially with a tasting menu when you're going to 12 courses um it should really be a progression and in those cases you want to start off with something light you'll you'll normally start with like a sashimi or a cold fish preparation that's on the lighter end of the palate and Mm -hmm. kind of progress up but if the entire tasting menu is a bombarding of rich lobster custard and foie gras and other things I could see that being a little much yeah and so what's the process for a restaurant getting their stars is there like someone who comes in and evaluates them do they know that person is the evaluator when they walk into the restaurant if it's michelin um they have their own inspectors and it's supposed to be an anonymous process but um i think after uh oh, there's some movie i can't remember what it's called they talk about how they can tell who the michelin inspectors are by how they come in um if they like if they come in with like a group of two, <clears throat> it's a two top and they order a certain way, then the expediter will alert the kitchen that we think we have Michelin inspectors in house. So, I mean, there's, there's kind of a, a rhyme and rhythm to some of it, but it's supposed to be anonymous. Wow. That's super funny. And so are those Michelin inspectors, are those also chefs and they're just with Michelin right now or not necessarily? No. Um, a lot of them have background in the food industry, but as far as being chefs, uh, a lot of them aren't. And so what is the difference between a two-star and a three-star? Like, is it just the food that you get at a three-star is supposed to just be magical? Yeah, I think Michelin, uh, the exact words are um, a destination restaurant that's worth flying to mm. um, and that the food is served at um a level of precision flawless precision some 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 verbiage like that um and uh i've I've had some really great two-star meals that i thought rivaled three stars that i've been to i've also had um three star meals that absolutely blew me away that were just uh as michelin says unparalleled um so i have heard about people having bad experiences which it happens it's the food industry um you're dealing with people uh sometimes the execution is off on a day or who knows if you know half the staff called in uh on the day you were there or or whatever the coolest part about that restaurant was that the kitchen was completely open and it was silent so as you were seated you saw all of the chefs and they just didn't they didn't talk they didn't do anything out of synchronous so it was pretty cool that part yeah that's awesome because normally is it just madness i imagine uh, yeah, it tends, it used to be um, back in the day, but um, a lot of yelling and shouting that used to go on, you're not allowed to do anymore for legal reasons. So oh, interesting. <laughs> things, things have changed in the kitchen. If you read Kitchen Confidential now, like that does not happen anymore. Like you're not allowed to do 90% of the stuff that was in that book. So interesting. Um, okay, so you recently came back from a couple of different trips around the globe doing your chef stuff. So I would love to know, what's it like traveling as a chef and where'd you go and what did you find? Sure. Um, February, I spent most of the month in Thailand um, and that was purely um, COVID lockdowns made travel really hard. I love to travel and um, 
I had decided because uh, the China border hadn't opened up yet. So um, I had decided that um, I love the flavors of Thailand. They're bold, they're dynamic, they're exciting. And um, it's, uh, I've heard it's an incredible place to go. So I just mm -hmm. decided I'm going to go over there for the month of February. And um, I landed in Bangkok and then um, I spent some time there. And then I went north to Chiang Mai, um, which is like the, uh, I would say it's like the capital of the soul food of of Thailand, especially up in the north, like khao soy and and iconic dishes like that. Mm. Um, <clears throat> the finely chopped lob um, meats, uh, that's where home is for Chiang Mai. Mm. Uh, and then I finished up in uh, Phuket, uh, which is on the very southern tip, uh, which is a big beach town. Um, tons of tourists there. And uh to find good food, I uh, I ended up going outside of Phuket because it was all, uh, even the like Thai restaurants there were just uh, serving uh, what I would call European geared foods that just mm. weren't that great. So mm. it's awesome. And so as a chef, are you trying every restaurant? Are you talking to people like in the markets? Where do you, how do you find the best food while you're traveling? Yeah, that's a good question. So I am... I've been in the industry long enough where I, I know quite a few people and mm. um, <clears throat> there's some uh, pretty well-known guys in the culinary world that, um, that are based in the U S but, but one of them actually lives in Thailand now. So I, I actually uh, DM'd him and he gave me a whole list. Um, and basically, yeah, before I went um, through my network, I just asked a bunch of different people and made a list of, Man, I think it was probably 80 restaurants or something. Um, and uh, yeah, I got to most of them. Um, and because uh, they're almost a month. So um, uh, yeah, that's my, I really don't rely on Yelp or whatever mm. the equivalent of that is. Um, I'm not a fan of Yelp reviews. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I just I just rely on my own network. And, and that's why. I've enjoyed publishing on the Substacks reviews. Like I did a, a Bangkok review where I listed a bunch of restaurants and I did a Chiang Mai review where I listed a bunch of restaurants. And um, I'm going to do one on Hong Kong. Um, yeah. I did one on Hong Kong breakfast um, that people seem to really like. Um, but yeah, those have been fun by, uh, so I can integrate my travels into the Substack posting, which is, has worked out well. Yeah, I think when you're on vacation or traveling, the most fun part, not the most fun part, but one of them is trying the new foods. And it's always a question of where are you going to get dinner tonight? So having an easy button for the many places that you've traveled will be super nice um, for when people actually go there. So I definitely will be reading those ones if I ever get to go to Thailand or the like. So you went to Hong Kong and Thailand. Anywhere else you went? Yeah, so when I was in Hong Kong, um, I was in China for most of the month of June. So um, when I was in China, I flew into Hong Kong. And when you're flying from the U.S. now, I mean, you've got to plan on about 30 hours of travel time. Yeah. Um, between, uh, and you're most likely going to stop over in, in Seoul, uh, Korea, before you catch a connection over to um, to the mainland or Hong Kong. So um yeah, it's if you're gonna go, go for a while because the travel is is not great. Yeah, what was your take on China right now? 
uh, I love the country. Um, it is a completely different culture. I did not see anyone freaking out about things. Everything, everything was pretty orderly. The subways are immaculate. There's mm. a security guard in every other car. Everyone's just uh, head down, going and doing what they're doing. If it's work or um, there's a lot of uh, shopping malls still over there that I saw. Yeah, I was stared at a lot because I'm a tall white guy. So, uh, <laughs> And so was the food better in Thailand or in China? Two totally different cuisines. I uh, could not pick, be like choosing between your kids, but I would love to live in both. <laughs> Hong Kong might be one of my favorite, might be my favorite food town on the planet. Um, it's just so, it's like a, it reminds me of a mix between London and San Francisco before San Francisco got to be a crap hole. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, because there's a, definitely a British influence in Hong Kong from when that was part of the British mm -hmm. Empire. Um and the food is just fantastic. And there's a lot of global um, influences now because it's um, such a key city geographically. When you say it's got a London influence, I've heard that the food in London isn't that great. And you would disagree? <laughs> um, <clears throat> I think one of uh, Twitter's most clickbaity, um, poorly made analogies is that British food is bland. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it can be, um, but some of the, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time in England in, in the past, and London is one of the most uh, diverse culinary cities, and um, uh, Indian curry has a huge presence over there, which mm -hmm. is not um, bland at all, <laughs> right? Uh, there's also a huge Cantonese population in London. Uh, some of the best Chinese food uh, that I had growing up was a takeout Um from a place called the friendly house, which no longer is, exists anymore, but I can still taste the food. Uh, when mm. I think so, uh, yeah, London's a great city. Interesting. Okay. So maybe I'll put it back on my, my list. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> put it on the list. And there's lots to go and see and do there as well. So. Right. Right. I was just in Ireland for a couple of weeks and well, like a week and a half, but, um, the food was, was surprisingly good. Awesome. I've, I've always wanted to go to Ireland and everyone that I've talked to says it's a gorgeous country. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing you would agree. Yes. Very gorgeous. My least favorite place that I went was Dublin. So we went okay. for a couple of nights there and it just felt like any American city, really just nicer, cleaner, better public transportation, but right. um, nothing crazy. It's when we got out to the west coast so we went to Galway and we went to Dingle and had amazing fish and chips and fresh seafood and it was just gorgeous and cute and fun and colorful is how I would describe it <laughs> sounds wonderful yep yeah it was really fun definitely want to travel more as I get a little bit more free time here but when you're traveling is it just tasting and trying all these restaurants or are you thinking about taking what you see and implementing it in your food going forward at your restaurants or your endeavors yeah my i view travel for me as education like mm -hmm. culinary education and so um when i can ideally i'm cooking in some of these places with people or um some of the best cooking i've done has been in people's homes that i've been over um and uh, as a visitor <clears throat> so that's uh uh Every time I travel, it puts a different imprint on uh, my perspective and point of view when I'm cooking, and it definitely plays a part into how I cook going forward. Mm. 
So that's uh, that's a big part of the reason for traveling for me is, is education and and learning more to increase my uh, depth of skill and and different approaches. Um, Chinese cooking has a completely different set of knife skills based on the cleaver versus mm-hmm. classical French or um, Japanese cuisine. Uh, totally different knife cuts, and so all that's interesting to me. And that's not something that you can learn like via reading about it or watching YouTube about it. It's something that you need to go taste the food, see them do it to really learn it. Absolutely. There's, I mean, you can watch all the videos you want, but especially as far as tasting, um, it's, it's never the same. And in order to get a base, as far as just understanding of where the food, uh, how the food tastes, where it's from, um, if you never have that base, you're not ever going to have an accurate, um, it's not going to be as accurate of a comparison or correlation. So if I wanted to go to a Thai restaurant in my city, I'll never know how really good it is unless I went to Thailand and tried it from the source. It's, I mean, probably not. And uh, I mean, there's certain reasons for that is um, the produce and the chilies and, mm-hmm. and the herbs that they're using over there are in some cases very difficult to find over here or just mm-hmm. you can't find them at all. Um I went to three cities looking for cilantro roots and couldn't find them in the state I was in. Uh, so, uh, and that's a foundational um, ingredient in curry paste in Thailand. So you can get close, but it's not going to be the same. So that's one example. Yeah. So if you had to pick one food that's your favorite in the entire world, what would you pick? Oh, why do you do this to me? <laughs> <laughs> it would depend on the day. Um I posted a picture of this um, chili beef in Chengdu, Sichuan, that was a mind-blowingly delicious uh, preparation. So that's kind of what's in my mind right now. Um, mm. Or caviar. <laughs> or caviar. Okay. Um, I just wanted to know. One other thing that I was thinking about is grilling because we're in the middle of summer. And uh-huh. every guy that I know has gotten a grill out on his tiny little city balcony and is hosting all the friends and trying to outdo each other grilling, which is so cute and so fun. So do you have any tips for people who are just starting to get grilling or that have been doing it for a while? What are some common mistakes that you see when people are man in the barbecue? Um, I wrote a few guides on this mm-hmm. a year ago in the Substack that are still there. Um, so that, those would be like long form references. Um, one of the Substacks I did was on a whole grilled fish. And uh, a lot of times that is tricky for people. And I made like a foolproof kind of way for people to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, using uh, using the appropriate heat is going to be a a foundational thing that you should always be checking. I just use my hand over the, over the coals to kind of gauge how hot your, your fire is. Mm-hmm. Um, also, you normally don't want to be cooking over a bunch of flame. Uh, it looks cool on videos, but flavor wise, it's normally not optimal unless you're just finishing something. But um, if you're, if your barbecue looks like it's on fire the whole time you're cooking, um, that's not optimal for flavor. Mm. Propane versus charcoal. Charcoal, hundred percent. 
Got it. Got it. And then how do you feel about the price of these different apparatuses? How much do you really need to spend on a grill for it to be effective? I don't think you have to go crazy with the expense account. Um, yeah, you can go out and buy an $8,000 smoker, but if you're just a hobbyist at home and um, that grills occasionally, just stick with a Weber kettle grill. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think you can get them for what, $80 or it's probably a hundred now or something. Um, and that is a classic kettle grill that you can smoke on, you can direct grill on. And they've even, they've even got like a collar that you can buy to put a rotisserie attachment on. And so if you wanted to ever mess around with rotisserie and that's just, one piece of equipment that um, doesn't take up a lot of space and is very versatile. Okay, I looked that one up. That looks like something we should definitely be getting. We were in Hope Depot and we saw one on sale for like $99. And so we just quickly looked at the reviews for this grill. And the first review was, don't buy, it burst into flames. So then we <laughs> were a little bit scared to get any of the cheaper <laughs> ones at Home Depot, but I will definitely look at the one that you just mentioned but it's just a fun thing to do it's great to host people have people over yep. what is your go-to summer grilling menu would you do fish uh i probably would yeah um i'm also a sucker for smoked chicken um mm. uh especially if it's dunked in this alabama white barbecue sauce it's got like a lot of uh, horseradish a little cayenne mm. vinegar um and it's a mayo-based dressing, so it's creamy. Um, those two. Um, and then grilling summer corn. Sometimes I'll grill watermelon, mm. uh, watermelon salad. Um, I think the sides are just as important. Uh, marinated. My great aunt used to make these marinated vegetables. It's like four ingredients. In, um, and you just cut fresh tomatoes and cucumbers and onions and let them soak for like a few hours. Mm. And if you, they're chilled and you serve it next to something hot off the grill, it's like that hot cold thing is just indescribably delicious and hits all the flavors on your palate. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> I totally agree. One time I grilled strawberries and put them in strawberry shortcake and it was fantastic. See, commoners got the, got the creative pastry skills going on. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the cool and the hot, just like you're talking about. One question I did have is, we go to the grocery store and we find these like pre-mixed rubs, pre-mixed seasonings. Are you completely anti those or do you think that they can be good at times? No, they can be good at times. Um, to me, that's that's all up to you. Um, I I'm more of a control freak. I like I like assembling stuff myself. Um, mm. There are a few, though, like um, Lowry's seasoning salt is a good hack for potatoes and whatnot mm -hmm. um i'm a big fan of the goya seasonings mm -hmm. um and there's a greek seasoning um can't remember the name of it but i think it's been around for like 50 years or something so if you go in the grocery store it's probably there yeah so those i'll use from on occasion um there's a spice company called penzies and they make a sandwich sprinkle that is really good as well you just sprinkle it on any sandwich you're having and it's delicious. Hmm. They do save a ton of time. So I do like those pre-made ones. Um, it's getting me onto the topic of what are just some staples in your kitchen that you always have from the grocery store? So you can always whip something up 
when the need arises? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I always have a jar of kimchi. <laughs> <in my laughs> um, and you can do a lot of things with kimchi. You can make kimchi barbecue sauce, kimchi mayo, kimchi, put a kimchi in anything, um, put it in a sandwich or, um, yeah, I always have kimchi. Um, I'm more of a, uh, proponent of having lots of olive oils and vinegars on hand. Um, uh, my last count was, I think I was at 18 bottles, different bottles of olive oil. Where do you keep them? You put them all trying. in your pantry? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it gets a little cramped sometimes, but <laughs> the bottles are aesthetic. So you can like uh, put true. them in uh, shadowed counter spaces. So, And they need to be glass, right? I learned that from you. Shadow and in glass. Otherwise, it's not real olive it, oil. Well, it's uh, if you buy olive oil that's in clear glass, the the purveyor or producer is not um, taking into account that the olive that olive oil is extremely volatile and sensitive to light. Um, so yeah, you don't want to buy it in clear glass. If it's uh, if it's a uh, tinted dark glass, you're in good shape. One of my favorite subtexts that you wrote was all about the olive oil because I thought I was being so advanced and elegant by only getting pure olive oil and then i found out this stuff is still crap and there's this one that was the biggest um crime that i thought where it said like olive oil in bright green font on the top and then underneath it it's in tiny font 75 percent whatever vegetable oil or canola, canola oil yeah. <laughs> and it was, i just in everybody it was on sale so it was in everybody's cart they had this olive oil that was fake yeah. So mad. <laughs> yeah and that's why it's cheap <laughs> yeah but okay good to know so the pre-made stuff i was worried it was going to be like less flavorful or older or just you know because it's all put together already but it saves a lot yeah of i wouldn't worry yeah i wouldn't worry about that and you can also you know spice it up and add your own touch to it as well if you want mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. okay sounds good and then the last thing that i wanted to talk about is coffee which is the second love of my life after working for a year. So what is the right way to brew coffee at home? Yeah, so this could get pretty autistic. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think uh, Bernard and myself have written quite a bit about um, coffee. So definitely if you if you want to go um, on the written word, there's plenty of stuff on my Substack about this. <laughs> But yeah, so as far as the right way, this is where it becomes pretty subjective to people's um, taste. I, when I look at a coffee bean um, and working with my roaster, we're trying to get the most optimal flavor out of the coffee, but we're not telling the coffee what it should taste like. So a lot of people, they want, oh, I only like dark roast or I only like light roast. I don't really approach coffee that way. Um and I think a lot of coffees <clears throat> aren't meant to be dark or light roasted. It should be roasted until the flavors within the bean are at optimal levels. So mm -hmm. that's kind of where, um, from a perspective, like point of view, I differ with a lot of people. Um, and that's okay. That's fine. If you like really strong, assertive, dark roasted coffees, that's like, go for it. But as far as making it at home, um, depending on the style, if you're one of those people that like a really super dark roast, um, probably a French press is going to be your best friend. Mm -hmm. Um, you'll get 
really good extraction. It's a coarser grind. Um, and, you know, if brewed properly, you'll have more contact time. And um, that's going to give you a a uh, reasonably strong cup of joe. Um, <laughs> I prefer uh, more fruits, um, more aromatics, um, and uh, like perfume notes that come off the coffee. So I, I prefer a pour over method for that. So when you say that the roast should be tailored to the bean, and so whatever roast unlocks the best flavor from the bean, how do you know? Do you test it? Yeah, so my roaster will will do um, small batch tests. And uh, especially if he's worked with the coffee before, he kind of knows where on the spectrum it's going to fall. Um, but we just got a coffee in last month. Um that he hadn't had in three years. And so that was, that was exciting. Um, and, uh, it was an Ethiopian varietal, um, that was grown in Colombia. So that's, uh, it was, it was a super cool coffee. It's called whoosh whoosh. And so does that just mean it's a different type of coffee plant? Yeah. So, so the, the coffee plant, the whoosh whoosh coffee plant was actually, um, first grown in Ethiopia and that's where it's naturally from um and then coffee importers from Colombia brought it in to grow it in their climate uh, mm -hmm. which I think is super cool kind of like it's almost like wine is what we're talking about um right. similarities um so yeah at home um I've got four different pour over methods that I use they're four different drippers and um the latest one I got is called a trickle um, and it's like a cylinder with a flat bottom because it's a flat bottom dripper. No water can go by the coffee without going through it first. And you'll see on a lot of these cone pour overs that, um, there's, there are these little channels, um, and that allows water to go by so that the coffee won't get clogged. Mm. Um, but with this dripper, um, all the water has to go through the coffee. And so um, you can play around with having a coarser grind, but still getting um, a longer contact time that won't over extract the coffee. Um, you can over extract coffee if the grind is too small and you're um, uh, and basically the water is in contact with the coffee for too long, you get too much of the coffee out, which you wouldn't think is a bad thing. Um, but it's almost like uh, tasting an orange or apple concentrate without adding water. You just get like a really aggressive, mm. um, overly extracted um, coffee taste, which um, isn't the best. Um, it's possibly better than a weak cup of coffee, but um they're, they're both not desirable. So you can really kind of geek out on playing with your grind size. And that's why having a good grinder at home is really important. And you should mm -hmm. only be grinding whole beans and not buying pre-ground coffee, please. Um, and you can get a really good grinder for $120 on uh, on Amazon. Um, it's a La Barazza Encore, I believe is what it's called. My first thing is that you said you have four different types of coffee trickleaters and you have 18 bottles of olive oil. So I'm just imagining you have an enormous kitchen because none of that would fit into my little apartment kitchen. But, yeah, um, and I, I just got on this Puerti kick. So I, I got the 
when I was in China, I had them ship over the the Chinese clay teapot and I've got 10 different <laughs> uh, pu'er teas that I am uh, about to start tasting. Um, yeah, I go I go down these tangents and uh, but it's it's interesting and fun. <laughs> no, it's super cool. I love I liked tea too. So I started drinking tea a lot over the winter because someone told me that coffee was I just wanted to like break my addiction to coffee, I think. And so I went to tea and I was doing a lot of like jasmine green tea and just stuff from the grocery store. And it just was not the same. And I missed coffee. And so I fell off the wagon. I just tripped, nosedived off the wagon, and now I have three cups of coffee a day. Do you, you like go. tea? Do you? I prefer, love tea. Is it as good as, or even better than coffee in some ways? Do I do I just not have the right tea? It fi- well no it fi- it fills a different um, it's comforting in a in a different way to me. So I grew up in a part of the world where uh, uh, tea was like an everyday thing. So I grew up mm-hmm. drinking milk tea. Um, so that's always nostalgic, and I still normally will have at least one every couple of days and then i got into like chinese teas because of my travels in in asia and um but you know tldr it's just a different it it hits a different note for me than coffee which i Mm -hmm. I love both Mm -hmm. where did you have your best cup of coffee internationally that's a good question wow you know the best coffee (laughs) yeah uh the best coffee that I had internationally it, it was in the states yeah it wasn't even internationally and um I've heard they're, they're doing some great things with coffee in Australia that there's like a cult following in Australia but which is on my list but I have never been to Australia but yeah mm-hmm. the best I still haven't had a better cup of coffee than in the good old US of A in which city there used to be a coffee shop in Texas uh it was not austin san antonio Mm. um and it was a uh it was a panama coffee and it was like 13 dollars a cup (laughs) and i was the i was the guy that said yeah sure that sounds like a great idea i'm gonna pay 15 (laughs) dollars for this cup of coffee and it was amazing yeah fascinating extremely Um, floral perfumed i'd never had a coffee like that before uh yeah so that that was the best cup of coffee i've had at least memory wise and so you sell coffee how do do. you find your beans how do you find this ethiopian roast that's in colombia or this panama blend whatever it is how do you source and say this is the one i want to sell this month so i work directly with a roaster who Mm. does not work with anyone else so he only works with me which is great uh Mm. we, we were we were really good friends for a long time. We were both in food and beverage. Um, and uh, yeah, so literally like these coffees, you, you can't get anywhere else, at least how we're getting them and roasting them, which which I think is cool. Um, but yeah, he, he was in coffee for, he's been in coffee for over, I think, 10, 15 years now. And so um, he has relationships with uh, importers. And um so he brings in coffees that he houses and then every month we'll talk basically once like once june roasts went out as soon as those shipped out we were talking about july and lining up july Mm. and july roasts went out so um 
I'm actually loading on the uh, the coffees for next month, which will be another super cool Ethiopian. But it's from Ethiopia this time, not grown in Colombia. So, mm. um, and so, what made you want to sell coffee, and why did you do the subscription version? Yeah, so coffee was something that I was seeing a lot of people um, talk about, but I didn't see a lot of really great iterations out there that at least people knew about. Mm-hmm. And because of my connection, uh, it seemed like something to try and see if people were interested. And it's uh, it's been a slow, steady, but great, um, great growth within the subscription. I did a subscription because I thought it would be great if every month I was getting two different coffees that were going to totally. be. And so that was the rationale behind it. Um, also coffee is seasonal, so you can't really get the same beans all year round. It's a plant. Mm. There's, there's growths and harvests and depending on where you are in the world, that happens at different times. And so having a subscription where we're sending two different coffees every month, you're getting the best premium coffee bean that's available at that time of year and you're getting octopod approved coffee yes i'm literally drinking the same coffee at home exactly and one of the things that pisses me off like nothing else is that the coffee at my workplace is so horrible and i'm like you're making me work this hard why can't you just have a decent cup of coffee in here so i passive aggressively bring my own home coffee to the office and i feel kind of like an elitist but so I'm really into coffee, two should, really yeah, good blends good. of coffee awesome. delivered to my door that I know exactly how to make Octopod approved from the fine dining traveling chef that he is a thousand percent. Exactly. <laughs> and I can walk into the office and be like, this is my Ethiopian, not from Colombia, but from actually Ethiopia this time blend. Exactly. And you guys are drinking whatever brown water Old that years. is. so bad Uh, they actually had a taste test to improve the coffee so i work at a consulting firm we're big on surveys focus groups whatever so they had a taste test with a group in the office to improve the coffee and the coffee that was selected was worse than the previous coffee and it's not like just a me thing the whole office thinks so it's just hilarious sounds like an epic fail i know they also sent us because, you know, the economy's not looking so great. They sent us a survey that was 10 minutes long about which snacks should be removed from the office. The hashtag first world problems. <laughs> yeah. And like they tried to remove the LaCroix wall and they faced huge backlash. I'm so... sure. That has a cult following. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you drink a lot of sparkling water? I dr- I used to drink Topo Chico's by the case. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I have an addiction to that as well. It just yeah. makes me feel like I'm drinking a real drink, not just water. Well, I love the carbonation effect on on your palate. So yeah, um, bubbles, bubbles are, and I love champagne too. So that's probably why. So yeah, some people hate the carbonation. I have friends that like really dislike it. I don't yeah. know. That just leaves more for us. So <laughs> um, well, awesome. Are you looking to do any other? like direct-to-consumer products in the near future? You have your knife set, you have the coffee, anything else? Yeah, um, I'm working on um, possibly uh, a yerba mate Ooh. tea. 
Um, I found an importer who I think has the best, like it's insanely awesome yerba mate. Um, I'm also thinking about some spice blends, but I'm not sure yet. So you're the first to hear about that. But um, I would buy your spice blend. See, yeah. So everyone, I I've not wanted to do it, which probably means I should. <laughs> Why haven't you wanted to um, do it? Because it's uh. It's just more of a pain sourcing, blending, packaging, and shipping um, that in true. that respect. Um, also looking at like inventories. And then like, I've learned that what I think is cool and awesome, a lot of people don't. <laughs> so I don't want to make a bunch of blends that I'm like, this is awesome. And then, people, oh, do you have like a Lowry's version? <laughs> so uh, uh yeah but if i started i would probably start with just one or two seasonings see how they go over get feedback from people and then um if there's an, if there's a uh a need then can expand from there if if possible i think you should do it but that's that's a funny point about the lowry thing like you you design a spices a spice blend for your lobster custard and exactly. people want it for your your hamburger it is that is a concern i get that but would the margins be decent on that? Are spices very expensive to source? Well, so that's the thing. Like, really good spices are expensive. Um, I went down this whole peppercorn rabbit hole. As one does. About uh, a month ago. Uh, There's a whole book on it. Um, And, uh, yeah, I totally nerded out. It was like the encyclopedia of peppercorns around the world. And uh, looking at like how white peppercorns are made um, versus black and green. And um, yeah, there's certain places in Africa, uh, Cameroon being one country that is has really high quality peppercorns that are, are sought after. Um, so yeah, it can, it can get expensive. Um, and that's the other thing. So spices also have a shelf life of, you know, like optimum usage. Um, so yeah, uh, sourcing, blending, storing, shipping, all that stuff is, um, cause I'd want to do it right. And not just, uh, buying pre-powdered spices that I'm mixing together and calling it my spice blend would not be that impressive. <laughs> so if I go to the store and let's say I want to buy cumin, is cumin better from some places than other places um yes but what will impact it more if you're in the grocery store is how long it's been laying around so Mm. so i tend to like to go and buy spices at middle eastern markets um because that culture heavily uses all of those spices and so i know that that hasn't been sitting in a warehouse for six months um Mm. And if you can, you know, buy buy spices whole, toast and grind them yourself. So I know ground coriander and ground cumin are really common, but if you can buy the seeds, lightly toast them. Don't let the pan heat up so hot that it's smoking. You will burn your spices. Mm-hmm. Let the spices cool to room temperature and then grind in either a spice grinder or mortar and pestle, and it'll be worlds away better than what you're getting from the tin at the store. That's pretty and good. could I do that? So like, let's say I buy a bunch of coriander seeds. Could I do that all in one go and then have my powdered coriander? Or should I do that for every time I cook and I want to use the so, coriander? 
yeah, you uh, that's up to you. I mean, optimal is would be grinding every time. Is that feasible? Like, no, maybe maybe grind enough for a quarter of a jar um, that you can refill at a later date uh, without doing all of them at once. But even if you do all of them at once and grind it yourself, it's going to smell so much more fragrant and aromatic um, than what you get at the store. Interesting. Interesting. Maybe in a different life when I have a little bit more time to cook, I will grind my own coriander. But <laughs> for right now, yeah. I will buy it powder. Um, what is one thing that you think is really worth the time to buy whole and process yourself at home? Is it coffee? Is it spices? Like, what's the one thing for someone who's busy that they should invest their time in doing? Oh, for someone who's busy. Okay. Um. I was going to say fish, but um, <laughs> yeah, if you're busy, like breaking, I, I love breaking down fish. Um, yeah, I think um, I, I mean, coffee is such a no brainer because once you have really, really good coffee, um, it's so much better um, than most of the crappy coffee that's around that it's, yeah. Yeah, it's such a, and you're, you're literally going to pay maybe $5 extra. Yeah. And it's going to be 50 X better taste wise. Um, so yeah, I mean, good, good whole coffee beans are just, uh, can be certifiably mind blowing. Yeah. And you start off your day with that. And it is once you start drinking it, a sense of pride that you have the best coffee in the office. So, yeah. And you, it, literally, <laughs> it literally tastes good. Like I I'm shocked at how many people drink coffee because they just chug it because they want caffeine fix like there's a much better way where you're not having to like hate your life for 10 minutes while you chug this down <laughs> um is decaf i've never really had decaf can that be really good too or is that like are you ruining the coffee by making it decaffeinated yeah i mean the 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 heating process to decaf the coffee is not optimal so um you'll find a lot of like premium roasters they won't even offer a decaf because mm. um it's either too finicky or it's got uh, a really um, a propensity to, to either over burn or over roast. Mm, okay. That makes sense. I wasn't planning on drinking decaf anyways, but always good to know that in case. it's bad anyways. <laughs> yeah. Um, you mentioned that you like breaking down fish. So you, can you explain why is that you're one of your favorite hobbies? Yeah. So uh i love knife work um and also um when you're breaking down a, a whole fish you get parts of the fish then that you don't get buying just a fillet so um like i used to get an aura king salmon which is a great uh it's almost like the wagyu of salmon i would say because okay. the fat content is so awesome on it so if you get a whole aura king salmon in and you break it down, well, you get the bellies at um off of the end of the fillet, and those are um like otoro tuna, um, but the salmon equivalent. And you can just simply grill those, you can confit them, you can um see what else you could do. Uh you could cure them and make the most awesome um smoked salmon. Um, that's got this super high fat content of all these like great omega-3 
fats that are in the salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, also, like the cheeks of the salmon are delicious. Uh, also, halibut cheeks, um, if you get whole halibut. Um, and you only get two of those on a fish. So um, those are like cook's treats, you know? Um, yeah. And I'm uh, uh, kind of a perfectionist. And so whenever I break a fish down, I'm always trying to leave as little on the bones as possible. So it's like a game. That makes sense. I've seen that in like Top Chef and all of those and, types of things. And then you can take the bones and either uh, just roast them and make a stock or you could smoke them and make a stock. And um, uh, yeah, it's like z- zero waste. Every part of that fish can be used. Very cool. I have recently started eating fish. Um, I used to be like scared of it. So I've been doing a lot of white fish. I can't, I can't get behind salmon yet. It's okay. like the, the, the fishy smell gets to me, but I'll get there. I believe in you. <laughs> My boyfriend is hoping so we can go to sushi restaurants and stuff. Um. Well, this has been super fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Anything else that you'd like to talk about? No, just, uh, you know, if you can travel and explore like food, I find uh, to be the common denominator that kind of brings people together. So um when i've been traveling what i've noticed is um even in asian cultures where people tend to be not as friendly um the restaurants i was in if you show an interest in the food people are very accommodating and uh mm. it makes a uh, makes for a great experience very cool i absolutely want to travel more that is one of my bigger goals in life and so now i have a a cheat sheet to make those trips as enjoyable as possible. So thank you again for coming on. Thank you for making really good coffee. I hope you make the spice blend so I can quickly season my meals like a Michelin star chef. We shall yeah. see. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And Thanks, Commoner. we'll talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening. This has been yet another episode of Common Sense. If you liked the conversation, please consider hitting that follow button on Spotify. Oh, and tell everyone you've ever met to do the same. And while you're feeling generous, why not subscribe to my YouTube channel? I promise I've ridiculed at least one of the identity groups you dislike. You have a great day now.